You are listening to the Ron Dunn Podcast. Ron Dunn is a well-known author and was one of the most in-demand preachers during the latter part of the 20th century. He led Bible studies all over the United States, Europe, and South Africa. For more information and resources from Ron Dunn, please visit rondunn.com. Would you open your Bibles tonight to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah, and to the 32nd chapter, Jeremiah chapter 32, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses. I'll be reading some other verses in this chapter in the course of the message tonight, but for the beginning, just the first 10 verses, Jeremiah chapter 32. I think it'll help us to understand a little bit better our passage if I give you a little background. Uh, Old Testament's not the easiest part of the Bible to understand. Prophets are not the easiest part of the Old Testament to understand, and Jeremiah is not the easiest prophet to understand. And when you plop down in the middle of the book and begin reading it, you're not to blame if you don't have the slightest idea what's going on. So let me just give you some background. Jeremiah is in prison as he writes these words, and he is in prison because he has been preaching a very unpopular message. At the time, the Chaldeans, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, are attacking the city or taking over the land, and they are engaged in a death struggle to the end with their eternal enemies, the Chaldeans. And so while this is going on, Jeremiah has been going around preaching a message that had three points to it and an invitation. Point number one is that Jeremiah was saying that God has raised up these Chaldeans to use them as an instrument of judgment and chastisement against us because of the people's sin, because of the idolatry and the desecration of the worship of the Lord, God has raised up these Chaldeans and they are swooping down on them and uh, they're God's instrument for chastisement. The second point was this, that no matter how desperately they fight against the Chaldeans, they will not win. The Chaldeans are going to defeat them and carry them off into captivity. Point number three, one of these days, though, somewhere down the line in the future, God will deliver them from their captivity and will bring them back to the land. So those were the three points. God has raised up the Chaldeans as an instrument of chastisement. Number two, doesn't make any difference what you do. You're not going to be able to defeat them. God has already preordained. They're going to win, and they're going to carry us off into captivity. But number three, somewhere down the line, God will, faithful to his promise, deliver us from that captivity, and bring us back to the land. Now, here was Jeremiah's invitation. If we cannot defeat the Chaldeans anyway, no matter how hard we fight, if God has ordained that they are going to carry us off into captivity anyway, but that one of these days he will bring us back to the land, then Jeremiah was reasoning, it just makes sense to go ahead and surrender and just give up. Why get yourself killed in a battle that God's already determined you're going to lose? Go ahead and surrender, and at least this way you'll be alive to enjoy the promise of deliverance later on down the line, you see. What he was preaching was a better red than dead message, actually, and the House Committee on Unjerusalem Activities met, and they decided that Jeremiah was guilty of preaching treason, which I guess in a way he was preaching treason. 
And so they had put him in prison, in the king's prison. And that's where Jeremiah is. So that'll give us some understanding as we begin reading with verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah king of Judah had shut him up, saying, Wherefore dost thou prophesy, and say, Thus saith the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah king of Judah shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him mouth to mouth, and his eyes shall behold his eyes. And he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there shall he be until I visit him, saith the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you will not prosper. Now while Jeremiah is in prison, he has another word from the Lord in verse 6. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalem, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, Buy thee my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. So Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said unto me, Buy my field, I pray thee, that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is thine, and the redemption is thine, buy it for thyself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even seventeen shekels of silver. And I subscribed the evidence, and sealed it, and took witnesses, and weighed him the money in the balances. Now, while Jeremiah is in prison, he has an unusual visitor. And there are three things that make this visitor unusual. Number one, it was a relative, Hanamiel, your uncle's son. It was his first cousin coming to see him. I say that's unusual because by this time, all of Jeremiah's relatives had pretty much disowned him, and all of his friends had pretty much denied him. I mean, after all, here is a man that is guilty of treason against the country and against the king, and is probably going to be put to death, and you just soon nobody know that you are related to Jeremiah. And so it's unusual that a relative would come to see him and expose himself to possible persecution because of his relationship. The second thing that makes this such an unusual visit is the purpose of Hannah Mill's visit. He's come to sell him a farm. Now, I don't know a great deal about real estate. I do know things have not been the best in the last few years for real estate agents. I know we've got a house for sale, if you're interested, uh, on 11 acres in Arkansas, make you a good deal on it. My brother sells real estate. My father sold real estate, mostly farmland, before he died. And I do know that they had some hard times. But it would seem to me that even in the best of times, the last place you'd go looking for a hot prospect would be prison. You know, you just don't normally go to prison and talk to condemned men and see if they have a, an urge to buy a farm. The third thing that made this such an unusual visit was the location of that farm. It was in Anathoth, in the country of Benjamin. You say, well, what's so unusual about that? 
Well, only this, if the Chaldeans had already overrun that territory, they were occupying the land there and this country of Anathoth. They were living on Hannah Mill's farm. Right? They were collecting the eggs and milking the cows over there. No wonder Hannah Mill wanted to get rid of that farm in enemy territory. You can almost imagine Hannah Mill said, oh my soul, why didn't I sell that thing when I had the chance? And, and, uh, and uh, now the enemy's occupied it and, and what am I going to do with it? And so I guess he thinks of old crazy Jeremiah, that crazy preacher cousin of his. I guess he thinks, well, if, if he's crazy enough to preach like he's been preaching, he's crazy enough to buy this farm. And so he comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, such a deal I've got for you. I want to sell you my farm. Well, where is it? Well, it's, uh, it's in Anathoth. Oh, Anathoth, right. Seems to me like I heard that the Chaldeans had already overrun that part of the country. I mean, isn't it true that your farm is now in occupied territory? Well, if you want to get technical, all right, it's where it is, you know. But anyway, you're a relative. I need to get rid of it, and the right of inheritance is mine. We like to keep these things in the family, so uh, I, I want to sell you my farm. And to prove that preachers have no business sense, Jeremiah bought the farm, you see. Now, it's a strange little story. I'll bet a lot of you didn't even know this was in the Bible. I bet if I were to ask everybody to list their ten favorite Bible stories, this one would appear on nobody's list. Some strange little story tucked away over there in the Old Testament. Now, what's going on here? What's happening here anyway? What is God doing? Is Jeremiah really so? Stupid that he would buy a farm that was occupied by the enemy? Why did Jeremiah buy that farm? Well, I know why Jeremiah bought that farm. Not because he had no business sense, but because God told him to. That's why Jeremiah bought the farm. The word of the Lord came unto me, he said, saying this exact thing is going to happen and I want you to buy the farm. Jeremiah was simply obeying the word of the Lord. So I, I know why Jeremiah bought the farm, because God told him to. But here is the problem. Why did Hanamiel think he would? What in the world gave Hanamiel the idea that he could sell a farm occupied by the enemy to Jeremiah, his cousin? He may be a crazy preacher because of the way he's preaching, but not many people crazy enough to buy a farm occupied by the enemy. Why was it that Hanamiel came? Hanamiel was not privy of what was going on. God hadn't come to Hanamiel. Hanamiel was not coming to Jeremiah because God told him to. Hanamiel had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. He had no idea that God had prearranged this whole thing. Hanamiel's motives had to come from something else. Now, can you imagine what was it that made Hanamiel so certain that he could sell that farm to Jeremiah? Well, Remember what Jeremiah had been preaching. Jeremiah had been preaching that even though the Chaldeans were going to defeat us and carry us off to captivity and they were going to take away our land, yet one of these days in the future, God would deliver us from that captivity and bring us back to this land and it would be restored to us. So here's the way Hanamiel was thinking. Hanamiel walks in and says, Jeremiah, I've got this farm I want to sell you. Oh, Jeremiah says, no, not on your life. I'm not that crazy. That farm is in enemy territory. The Chaldeans own that farm now. No, I'm not about to buy that farm. Hanamiel would say, 
Oh, excuse me, Jeremiah. I guess I misunderstood your last sermon. I, uh, I thought you had been preaching. I thought you said that God had told you that one of these days he was going to drive the Chaldeans off of this land and give it back to us. I guess you don't believe what you were preaching then because it seems to me if you really believe what you've been preaching, you'd buy the farm knowing that one of these days God's going to give it back to you anyway. You see, Hanamiel knew that Jeremiah had preached himself into a corner. Jeremiah had only two alternatives, either buy the farm or admit that he didn't believe what he himself was preaching, you see. For Jeremiah, it was time to put up or shut up. Put your money where your mouth is. So I know why Jeremiah bought the farm, because God told him to. I know why Hannah Mill came to him to sell him the farm, because he knew Jeremiah had preached himself into a corner and had no choice. But the question is, why did God arrange this whole thing? What in the world is going on here? What God is doing with Jeremiah is what he does with all of us from time to time in one way or another. You know what God is doing? He is testing the reality of Jeremiah's faith. He is saying, Jeremiah, do you really believe what you've been preaching? Let's test. Let's see how real your faith is. It's one thing to preach the sermon. It's another thing to live the life. And so what God is doing in this entire story is he is putting Jeremiah's faith to the test. And that's something that God always does with us. There come those moments in our lives when God what he is doing in arranging certain circumstances and allowing certain things to happen, God is putting us to the test. He is testing the reality of our faith. How real is our faith? In other words, Jeremiah, do you really believe what you've been preaching? I remember some years ago when our second son was about eight years old, we were driving home from church one Sunday morning and he said in the back seat, he said, Daddy, did you really mean what you said this morning or were you just preaching? <laughs> and you know, I think many times, now honestly, don't you think this is so? There is something about coming into the church. When you come into the church, you sort of leave reality at the door and everything that goes on in here doesn't have much to do with outside. We really don't take the preacher all that seriously. I mean, we actually don't. We don't expect anybody to actually take all of this seriously and go out here and change your life. We expect the preacher to preach like he's doing. I mean, that's what preachers do. They preach. And they teach the Bible. And we like it, you know. It's good and we enjoy it. But uh, do you mean to tell me that I am to arrange my life and I'm really to work out the details of my life according to what? The Word of God says there is something unreal about our coming into the place of God and listening to preaching. A lot of times we really do believe, well, he doesn't mean that. He's just preaching. I'll tell you this much. Preaching is the easiest thing I do in my Christian life. I have figured out if I could stand behind the pulpit 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'd almost be sinless. I hardly ever preach. I hardly ever sin while I'm preaching. The tough thing about my life is not preaching it. The tough thing is living it. 
backing it up. Do you really believe what you say you believe? It's easy to believe things. It really is. It's easy to stand up and say, praise the Lord, I believe this. It's another matter altogether, though, to back it up with your life. You know, I can remember almost to the day and Kay and I were visiting with Jonathan and, Mar and Marthy and Debbie Beasley this afternoon. We were talking a little bit about this. I can remember the day. I can see it just as clearly as I can see you. When I came to the realization that from here on out, God was not going to give me the luxury of preaching untested and unlived sermons. I realized, like I say, I knew it just as clearly as I knew anything in my life that from here on out, I was going to have to experience and practice everything I preached. And I want to tell you something, folks, that'll make you mighty selective in what you preach about. But I had for years, I began preaching as a young person, as a teenager, and I had pastored churches and preached revivals, and I had preached things that I believed to be true and I was trying to live, but I preached a lot of things that I myself had never really personally been through and experienced. And God blessed the Word. He always blesses the Word. But there comes a point in a witness's life, in a believer's life, in a minister's life, when you have to take that next step beyond simply preaching that which is true, but becoming the sermon yourself, which is what Jeremiah was. Jeremiah himself became the message. He became the sermon. And God let me know in ways unmistakable that I no longer had the luxury of simply believing things easily. It was going to take some living of it on, on my part. And he said to me, don't preach the sermon if you can't live the life. And I'll be honest with you, folks. God will not always allow you the luxury of just believing and not experiencing it. God is not always going to allow you the luxury of believing things and believing God without ever having it put to the test. God tests the reality of our faith because it's necessary, you see. Because the truth is that you and I can never really know for certain that what we're calling faith is the real thing until it's been put to the test. An untested faith is a worthless faith. You remember Peter writing in that first chapter of his epistle, he talked about these believers who were going through many trials. These were necessary trials. He said that the, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes might be found to be authentic, might be found to be genuine to the praise of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying the reason that God is carrying you through dark and deep waters right now is so you can discover whether or not your faith is real. Whether it's genuine, you'll never know until it's put to the test. You may be sitting here tonight and you may say, well, uh, I trust the Lord. Why, if I had to do this or if I had to believe God for this, I, 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 sure, I trust God. I, why, I believe God. I trust Him. 
But I suggest that you can never really be certain that what you're thinking is faith is a genuine article until it's put to the test. It may be presumption. It may be fantasy. It may be simply a sentimental feeling. It may be a number of things. You cannot know for certain that it's the genuine article until it's put to the test. An untested faith is a worthless faith. And God's doing us a favor, folks, when he does it. The fact of the matter is, he really is. Now, I don't know any of us that would want our faith tested, but really God is doing us a favor by doing it. I mean, if my lifeboat has leaks in it, I want to know about before the ship goes down. And if what I'm thinking is real faith is not genuine as I believe it is, I want to know it before the crisis comes. I remember in 1981 when they had the Southern Baptist Convention out in Los Angeles. Kay and uh, my daughter and uh, we, I drove out there. We all three went out there. We drove instead of fly because we wanted to uh, take a few days vacation. We spent the first night in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Next morning I was out on the parking lot <coughs> putting our suitcases in the trunk and I was bending over into the trunk and I became aware of a car pulling up behind me and stopping. And I turned around, and there it was. A car had pulled up, man and woman, in the front seat. And I could see from where I was that the man had a road map unfolded over the steering wheel. He rolled down the window, and he said something to me, motioned me over. I assumed it was some fella uh, who had lost his way, and he was wanting, you know, direction. So I went over there, and I said, yes, sir, what uh, can I help you? And he reached under that road map, and he pulled out a gold necklace. And he said would you like to buy a gold necklace real cheap? <laughs> I said, no, sir, no. He said, genuine gold, 18 karat gold, make you a real good deal on it. Boy, I kept looking for the cops to come in any minute, you know. I said, no, no, no I don't know. I don't need a gold necklace. He put it back under the road map, opened his jacket. He had watches hanging from the inside. He said, you want to buy a genuine Rolex real cheap? You know, that's happened to me three times. I don't know if I just look dumb or crooked, but that's, that's happened to me three times. I said, no, sir, no, I, no, I, I, no, I don't want to buy that. And I went back into the room and I told Kay about what happened. You know what she said? She said, wonder how much he wanted for that necklace. I was so disappointed in her. <laughs> You'd be a, you don't want to buy that necklace. First place you know it's probably hot, probably stolen. But the real reason is you don't know if it's real gold or not. How, how do you know that's gold? That could be electroplated. That could be gold-plated. I mean, you'd be a fool to buy something like that when it wasn't tested. You didn't have it tested to see if it's real gold. You know why? Because all that glitters is not gold, folks. And all that believes is not faith. And so Jeremiah had it put to him. You know what God said? He said, Jeremiah, it's time to buy the farm. And there come those moments in your life and my life when it's time to buy the farm. Put your money where your mouth is. Listen, if your faith isn't worth investing in, it's not worth believing in. I never will forget when I was pastor there in Irving, 
there was a mother and father who had a wayward son, teenage son, really away from God, and they had asked me to put his name in my little black prayer book and to pray for him. And I had prayed for him, as others had, and I never will forget one Sunday night during a revival meeting when God really moved and came down. Here comes this teenage boy down to the altar and he falls on his knees there just crying and, and uh, I go over and talk to him and this boy comes in repentance and won't re uh, consecrate his life to Christ but he goes one step beyond that. He says, Pastor, I believe God's calling me to the mission field. Well, I thought that was about the most wonderful thing that could ever happen. And so I presented him that night to the church, and I said, this young man, and everybody knows him, he's come back to God, he's been away from the Lord, and not only that, he is committing his life tonight to be a foreign missionary. And everybody just praised God and shouted amen. I thought it was wonderful. Next morning, Monday morning, I got a phone call from that boy's mother. And she said, Pastor, you've got to help us. You've got to help us. You've got to talk to him. I said, what, what, what are you talking about? You've got to talk him out of this. I said, what are you talking about? We can't let him throw his life away as a foreign missionary somewhere. If your faith isn't worth investing your kids in, it's not worth believing in, folks. By the way, I call this sermon Jeremiah's Bet, if you want a title. Because that's a pretty good description of what faith is. It is betting everything on God's faithfulness. It is betting your future. That's what Jeremiah is doing. What Jeremiah is doing is saying, I believe that God controls the future. I believe there is a future with God. I don't believe the last word. I don't believe the last word is the Chaldeans. I don't believe the last word is the Chaldeans. The last word is God, and I'm betting on Him for my future. And we've talked about, we talk about everywhere I go, and we've talked about this week of the pain and the suffering that so many people are going through. And why is it that sometimes we as Christians seem to be suffering more than anybody else? It's enough to make you lose your faith or question the existence of God. But I want to say to you, if suffering and pain was the last final word, it would cause you to lose your faith and deny the existence of God. But that's not the last word. That's not the final word. That's not the ultimate word. The last word you'll find over in Revelation where he says, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eye. That's the last word. What Jeremiah is saying, listen, these Chaldeans don't have the last word. They think they do. But God has the last word. And I'm betting everything I am, I'm betting everything I have that the future belongs to God and he'll be faithful to his word. God testing the reality of our faith. Now, it'd be wonderful just stop right there and go home and say, well, isn't that nice? I mean, Jeremiah passed that test with flying colors. But the fact is, that's not where the story ends. I want you to turn now to the 16th verse. Jeremiah 32, 16. Now, after I had delivered the evidence of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed unto the Lord, saying... Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. And then in the following verses, Jeremiah prays one of the most beautiful prayers you'll ever read. He goes into great detail recounting all the wonderful things God has done for his people in the past. And he comes down to verse 24 in his prayer. 
And he says, Behold the mounts, they are come unto the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine and of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. And thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee the field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now what's happening here? Well, Jeremiah has received the word from God, and then it's been unfolded to him. Hanamiel has done exactly what God said he would do. He has paid the money. He has signed the deed. It has been witnessed, and everybody has left him, and Jeremiah now is left all alone in his cell in the king's prison. And he begins to think, I bought that farm. Well, God told me to buy that farm, but I bought it. And it's in the hand of the Chaldeans. I, I know God told me to buy it, though. Of course, I bet right now Hannah Mill's laughing at me. I bet right now he's going to all the relatives saying, Hey, you got anything you want to unload? Old crazy Jerry down at the prison, he'll buy anything. He'll buy anything. He bought my farm. He bought my farm. He said, I know they're all laughing at me. Oh, but God told me to do it. I know, I know God did. I'm almost certain God told me. Just pretty sure God told me to do that. I need to pray. And so he prays, and he starts off with a sigh. Ah, Lord God, and that's not the sigh of someone who's weary. It's the sigh of someone who's worried. He says, oh, Lord God, thou hast told me to do this. You've created the heavens and the earth. There's not anything too hard for you. And he goes back and talks about all the wonderful things his omnipotent God has done. But he comes down in the last part of that prayer and he says, now Lord, I want you to look out there and I want you to see those Chaldeans as they're approaching the city. He says in verse 24, the last part of that verse, and what thou hast spoken is come to pass and behold thou seest it. Jeremiah is saying, Lord, everything you've said has come true so far. But now you told me to buy the field for money and take witnesses, whereas the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. You know what's happening to Jeremiah? He's having a relapse of his faith. He's having second thoughts. He's having doubts. What he says is, Lord, everything you have said has come true so far. But now, Lord, you told me to buy the farm, and I, boy, you know, it's already given into the hand of the Chaldeans, Lord. You know, Jeremiah, Jeremiah's faith is sagging. He's saying, Lord, everything you've said has come true so far. But I'm not sure about the next thing. I was in Decatur, Alabama a few years ago, and I guess it's just a local phrase these people use down there. But every night, I would have people come up to me after the service, and they'd say, Brother Dunn, we have certainly enjoyed you so far. Every night, they'd say that. <laughs> and every night, the pastor would get up and say, Well, we've certainly enjoyed having Brother Dunn so far. And it kind of gave me a tentative feeling, you know, like, Well, son, you've done good so far, but that doesn't mean much. We're going to wait and see what happens tonight. I got up one night, and I said, Would you folks stop saying that? You're making me feel mighty uh, uncertain here. Well, that's exactly what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying, God, everything you have said has come true so far, but I don't know about this one. 
I don't know about this. I tell you, you would think that you would learn the lesson finally, wouldn't you? If I were to go back tonight and remember all the times God has delivered me, all the times God has answered my prayer, all the times when I thought I was going down for the third time and God scooped me out, you'd think I'd never doubt him again, wouldn't you? You'd think a fellow by uh, uh, Jeremiah's status and spirituality, by this time there would be no doubt. And yet it doesn't seem to make any difference how many wonderful things God has done for us. It doesn't seem to make any difference how many prayers he has answered for us. We still have a hard time believing. Well, I know, I know God delivered me last year. I know that, but I tell you, this is a whole other ballgame. Relapse of faith. The sad thing is this whole beautiful prayer of Jeremiah's is a prayer of unbelief. What he's trying to do is to pray himself back up, you know, in the faith, trying to pump himself up. Has that ever happened to you? Ha have you ever been in a revival meeting or a church service and boy, God just came down and the presence of God was so strong and you were just being borne along by the wave of emotion and choir was singing, have thine own way and the pastor was pleading and Boy, you just, oh, you know, you stepped out and you walked down that aisle and you made a vow, you made a commitment to the Lord and everybody praised God for it and you stood up there and they came by and shook your, their hand afterward and they said, we're going to pray for you and you just felt so great. Oh, you just felt so great. And you went home feeling so great. You went to bed feeling so great. And you wake up the next morning and it's morning. And there's no choir singing. And there's no preacher preaching. And you begin to think, oh, boy, I made that commitment last night. Well, I know it was the right thing to do. I think it was. And you begin to wonder. You know, in the cold light of day, when you're away from the controlled atmosphere of the church, when you're away from the persuasiveness of preacher and singing, and all of a sudden you're faced in the cold of the morning with the fact you made some big decision and you made some big commitment, and all of a sudden you wish you could hear the choir sing a couple of more verses. You wish there was some way you could kind of recapture the same spirit. Has that ever happened to you? Where in one moment, you have committed yourself to the Lord or you've stepped out on faith and at the time you knew you were doing the right thing, but later on as time went by, all of a sudden you begin to have doubts. And that's exactly what happened to Jeremiah. And I want to tell you something. I'm glad God put that in the Bible. That makes me know I'm not so bad after all. I used to think that faith was the absence of doubt but it is not. Faith is the overcoming of doubt. Faith is the courage to act in spite of whatever doubts you may have. John Calvin said, the mind is never so enlightened and the heart so established that there remain no vestiges of doubt. And to tell you the truth, I don't know that I could honestly say tonight that in my Christian life, 
as God has called me to do different things and as Kay and I have had to step out in different times and trust the Lord, I don't know that I could honestly say to you tonight that every time, every time I've always obeyed the Lord with 100% pure, unadulterated faith. No, the truth is, most of the time, back in the back 40 of my mind, there have been a few rumors of doubt and uncertainty. I love what the father of the demon-possessed boy said. He, Jesus came down and he said, Lord, can, can you heal my son? And Jesus said, anything's possible if you believe. And he said, Lord, I believe, sort of. He said, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I like that. I've taken that as pretty much my motto when it comes to praying about these things. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. There is some unbelief in my heart. There is, there is over here a pocket of doubt and uncertainty. Lord, I believe, but I have to be honest and say that there are some parts in me that resist this. It's a very normal and natural thing, friend, for your faith to sag a little bit in the middle once in a while. One of my favorite stories is over there in the book of Acts, chapter 12. You remember when Herod put Peter in prison. He had chopped James' head off with the sword, and everybody, all the Jews and everybody liked that. He said he'd do the same thing with Peter. So he put Peter in prison, and the next morning he was going to cut his head off. And you know what happened. The church gathered there in the house of Mary, and they began to pray for Peter's deliverance. That, that, that church, that New Testament church that we we're always talking about that tremendous Pentecostal Holy Ghost New Testament church gathered over there in the house of Mary and prayed for Peter's deliverance. And there's Peter in that prison. He's asleep. You know, the one thing about Peter, he can sleep anywhere. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is about to be crucified and Simon Peter falls asleep. Now, I tell you this much. I think if I were in prison and I knew that when the sun came up, my head was going to come off, I think that'd pretty much keep me awake all night long. But there's Peter. He's sound asleep. I'll tell you how sound asleep he is. He's so sound asleep that the angel has to kick him in the side to wake him up. You read it. It says he smote him. The angel smote him, popped him, and said, Get up. Come on, Peter. Go. And he gets up, and, Peter, and he says, no, no, Not in that big a hurry. Uh, put your coat on. Tighten up your belt. Get your shoes over there. No use leaving your shoes here. And he gets him, and he leads him out past 16 guards. He was guard, guarded by four squadrons of four men apiece. 16 guards, they don't have a clue as to what's happening. Leads him out into the street, and then the angel departs, and Simon Peter is left there. And after a moment, he comes to, rubs his eyes, and he said, My soul, this isn't a dream. This isn't a vision. I've been delivered. Well, he knows the church is gathered in the house of Mary praying, and so he makes his way to that church to the house. He knocks on that door. And uh, a little girl by the name of Rhoda comes to the door. And uh, she hears the voice and she recognizes it. It's Peter. And she's so excited. I mean, they, they've just, they've, they're in there right now praying for Peter's deliverance. And there he is right there on the doorstep. She's so excited she forgets to let him in. And she goes back in there where the church is praying. Now remember, this is the New Testament church, the one we're always trying to get back to, you know. The ones we're always idolizing, that Holy Ghost, Pentecostal bunch that we're always trying to be like, there's a New Testament church praying for Peter's deliverance. And Rhoda says, it's Peter, he's at the door. And do you know what this New Testament church, the one we're always trying to be like, do you know what this New Testament church says? She's crazy. <laughs> She's crazy, that's not Peter. 
girls lost their mind. She said, no, I tell you, I recognize his voice. I promise you, it's Peter. They said, oh, it's his ghost. They've already killed him. It's just his ghost. Now, isn't that something? It's amazing. Here is a New Testament church, the one we're always trying to be like, is praying. I mean, they're praying, and God's knocking on the front door with the answer. And they don't believe it. They're not praying in faith, were they? You say, oh, but preacher, I thought God only answered prayer in faith. Well, I thought that too, but evidently sometimes he answers prayers by grace. as well as by faith. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is this, that you are not abnormal, nor are you losing your salvation, nor are you a carnal Christian simply because there come those times in your life when suddenly you find your faith being stretched to the limit and you, like Jeremiah, say, Lord, I know everything you've done right. You've done right so far, but I tell you, I don't know about this one. I don't know about this one. Then there's a third thing. If you have doubts like this, there are three things you can do with your doubts. Two of them I don't recommend. One, you can publish them, and I don't necessarily mean in a book. I mean you can just open your mouth and every time you speak, all you're speaking is just doubt and doubt and doubt and doubt. Now, I know there are times we need to go and talk to somebody for counseling about our uncertainties and our doubts, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this kind of thing that every time you open your mouth, you don't ever speak grace or encouragement to anybody. All you speak is doubt and uncertainty. I don't recommend you do that. A second thing you can do is you can repress it deny it's there. And we do that a lot because we know we're not supposed to doubt God. And so we, we don't doubt Him. I mean, we know we're lying down in the guts of our soul. We know that there is doubt there, but you, you don't say that's not proper. Have you ever noticed how we pray? Have you ever noticed how we try to keep up the front when we pray with God? I mean, even alone, Are we honest when we get along with God and, and begin to talk to Him? Have you ever been mad at God and told Him? Have you ever been angry at God and told Him, Oh, no, would never do that. Like He doesn't know. Uh, one of the greatest discoveries I ever made in my Christian life was when I discovered it was all right to tell God the truth. Because he knew it anyway. He knew it anyway. Listen, I have never confessed anything to God and heard him gasp in surprise at hearing it. The Lord has never said, Well, I'm so disappointed in you. I would never have thought that of you. God knows it already. I want to tell you something, you better deal with it because if you suppress it, if you try to deny it, try to ignore it, it's going to express itself one way or another sooner or later. Don't try to suppress it and deny it. The third thing you can do, and this is what I recommend, you can take it to the Lord. You can tell God about it, which is what Jeremiah is doing. 
I think it's important to realize that Jeremiah didn't offer this prayer of unbelief until everybody was gone. He, he didn't want to he didn't want to rub his doubt off on anybody else. But he brought it to the Lord. And I want you to notice what happened in verse 26. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah. I wrote out beside that, When then? Then came the word. When did it come? When Jeremiah prayed, even though that prayer was a prayer of unfaith, even though that prayer was a prayer where Jeremiah was, was expressing his doubts and uncertainties. But when he prayed, then came the word of reassurance. So we have the reality of our faith being tested. We have the relapse of our faith that occurs. And then we have the Lord reassuring our faith and reestablishing our faith and giving us a new word of assurance. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? That sounds familiar. I, I seem to remember hearing that somewhere else. Oh, yes, it's up in verse 17. It's the last part of Jeremiah's prayer. Isn't that remarkable? Jeremiah prays. He says, Lord, I know there's not anything too hard for you. And God comes back and said, You said it. There's nothing too hard for me. Now, I want to just say two things about the word of reassurance that God gives us. Many a time, we walk in darkness. And we seem to have lost our way. There are times when outward circumstances contradict everything God has said. That's the way it was with Jeremiah. God had said, I'm going to deliver you from the Chaldeans and I'm going to give you back this land. But you look out there and every scrap of evidence denies that. And there are those times when outward circumstances and even our own feelings will contradict everything we're believing God about. But I want to say to you that the Lord will not abandon you, that the Lord will come in His good timing. He will come to give you a word of reassurance. He will come to ignite once again the spark of faith. Folks, listen, you can trust God. God's not going to get you out on a limb and saw it off behind you. He's really not. I promise you that. You head on down that road and you may be walking in darkness and uncertainty, but you keep doing. Somebody asked me one night, I said, Preacher, what do I do when I don't know what to do? I said, when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. What's that? Just keep on walking. Just keep on obeying. Do what you know is right. Keep on doing it. Sooner or later, God is going to come to you with a word of reassurance. He's not going to abandon you. But there are two important things. First of all, I want you to notice that when God gave to Jeremiah a word of reassurance, he did not tell Jeremiah anything Jeremiah did not already know. He simply reaffirmed what he had already said to Jeremiah. Now, there is significance here because, you see, when we find ourselves walking in darkness, at that time, we become very vulnerable to false teaching. You know how it happens. Oh, sometimes it gets so dry. 
Sometimes you're in a church that is so dead and your quiet time doesn't work anymore. Your spiritual life is so dry and dusty and, and you just, you, you've gone numb spiritually. You just don't feel anything and, and you don't feel like your prayers are rising above the ceiling and you don't feel, when you read the Bible, your mind wanders and, and you just, and you, you're trying to recapture that old feeling that you once had, but it's not there and you're so filled with doubts and, and uncertainties and, and you're, you're so desperate to somehow feel God or feel something. To the point where you almost accept anything just because it moves. <laughs> I was in a revival meeting at a church that your pastor knows very well. Some years ago, musician and I were there together in a revival meeting, and it was like unto the one I talked about the other night. It was dead. I mean, really dead. But it was not dead just for the meeting. It was dead all year long. It was the kind of meeting you're glad that you're going home Wednesday night when it's all over. I'll tell you how bad it was. I'll tell you how terribly dead it was. The last night of the meeting, the singer, who usually did 30 to 45 minutes of music, after 10 minutes he turned to me and he said, it's yours. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, we were sitting there, the pastor and I sitting there on the platform, and there weren't many people out there. Uh, singing. But I noticed one elderly woman. I'd not seen her before. First time I'd seen her. Sitting out about middle ways. And during the singing, that woman raised her hands like this. I leaned over to the pastor and I said, that must be a visitor. <laughs> he said, yes it is. Well, I got up and preached and I gave an invitation and of course nobody came. And so uh, uh, I turned it over to the pastor and, and he sung another verse and this woman, the one who had raised her hands, this elderly lady, came down and spoke something to him. And so he got up and he said, uh, this woman has come tonight and she wants to say a word. She's asked if she couldn't say a word. And she has a big old Bible with her and she opens it to some obscure verse in Ezekiel and reads it and begins preaching and telling people they need to get down here on this altar and get on their knees and pray. And she said, let's sing another verse. <laughs> I mean, there she is. And we sing another verse, and of course, nobody comes. I mean, it is awful. And boy, she's not dismayed. She turns to Isaiah, reads another obscure verse out of Isaiah, says a few words about it, and says, now, and she speaks to the women. She said, now, ladies, let's lead the way. Some of you get down here on your knees. And three or four women got up and came down to the altar and the musician came over to me. He said, do you think this is a god or the devil? I said, I don't care. It's something. I, I don't care. It's something. I mean, there's somebody moving. There's somebody grunting out there. And sometimes you get so dry and thirsty. That you, and you know what? Somebody will come and say, yeah, I, you know what you need? We have discovered this new church that has this new truth. And that's what you need. You need this new truth. Or you need this experience. I was the same way you were, and all of a sudden God showed me something I'd never seen before, and I, I had this great experience. That's what you need. 
Boy, you'll say, I'll jump at anything. I'm ready to do anything. I'm so miserable. I'll do anything. Listen, let me tell you something. When you are discouraged and depressed and you're walking in spiritual darkness, you are so vulnerable to all kinds of false teaching because you're willing to do anything just as long as you feel something. But I want to tell you something. When John wrote his epistle warning the people of the days in which the Antichrist would come with their false teaching, do you know what he said to them? He said, little children, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. They're going to be false teachers, Antichrist coming, and they're going to be spouting false doctrines. But he said, you make certain that what you heard from the beginning, not what you've heard lately, not what you've heard, not the latest revelation, but let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. Paul writing to young Timothy, telling him that in the last days perilous times shall come and preachers will come preaching false doctrines. And you know what? And do you know what Paul told Timothy? He said, Timothy, when those preachers and teachers come with their new doctrine and teaching. He said, you remember what you learn from your mother and your grandmother. Eunice and Lois. <laughs> Do you remember when they used to have TEL classes and, and Sunday school classes? Anybody here old enough to remember TEL, Sunday school class? It was usually a woman's class. TEL, Timothy, Eunice, and Lois. Anyway. <laughs> Paul says to Timothy, he says, Son, when these false teachers come and they bring all this new, fancy, slick-sounding doctrine, he said, you remember what you were taught as a child. And you remember what your pastor, me, told you. These Johnny-come-latelys, I tell you, folks, I don't understand. I mean, we may have a pastor that has faithfully for years and years and years and years taught us the Word of God, lived before us a clean, righteous life, and then some guy comes on television we don't know beans about, but he's slick and perfumed and everything, and we'll believe anything he says just because he's on television. Paul says, Timothy, you remember, I've proven myself. I've got a track record. You know the life that I've lived before you. And I want you to remember this. When the false teachers come, you remember what you were learned, what you were taught as a child, what your mother and grandmother told you, and what your pastor told you. And I want to say to the young people here tonight, well, to anybody else for that matter, if there ever comes a time in your life when you don't have any better reason for believing that the Bible is true other than your mother said it was, that's a good enough reason. If the time ever comes when you don't believe and you have no reason for believing that this Bible is the Word of God, the only reason you've got to believe is because your pastor said it was, that's a good enough reason for right now. Remember what you learned as a child, what you were taught. Dr. Karl Barth, who is supposed to have been and is said to be the greatest theologian of the 20th century, wrote... Oh, how many volumes? 24 volumes on church dogmatics, have you? They're big books with little print and a lot of pages in them. Gigantic mind. Swiss theologian, greatest of the 20th century, we're told. He was being interviewed one day, and the reporter said, Dr. Bart, you've written all these books on church dogmatics. How do you know it's true? Karl Barth said, my mother told me it was. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, everyone here tonight, 
you're going to be in a situation sometime when you're going to be so desperate to feel God, so desperate to find something. If you're not careful, the devil will slip you a mickey, a false teaching, false experience. That's the first thing. Second thing, and this is with, with, we'll close. When you find yourself in that spiritual experience where everything is dead and dry, and you don't know what to do, as I said, you just do what you know to do. You keep on walking. And God will eventually send to you a word of reassurance. Do you remember in John chapter 4, the nobleman who came to Jesus and said, my son is about to die. Would you come home with me and heal him? And Jesus does something very unusual. He reacts in a rude manner. He said, that's a trouble with you people. You're always wanting signs. I'm not going to give you a sign. Go on home. Your boy's all right. And the Bible says the man believed Jesus and went back home. I figured it up one day. It was about a 20-mile walk from where the man lived to where Jesus was. About a day and a half's walk. I've tried to imagine that father making that lonely walk by himself. Boy, it must have been a long walk. Of course, he had anticipated that on the way back, he'd have Jesus with him. And that if his faith began to sag a little bit, all he had to do is kind of look over there and there's Jesus right there. Oh, I tell you, there have been times in my life I'd given everything I owned if I could just open my eyes and see Jesus standing there in the flesh. But I didn't see him. And so the father walks, and he gets about halfway home, and one of his servants meets him on the path and says, your boy is all right. And he said, well, when did he start getting better? And the servant told him, and it was the same hour when Jesus said, your son lives. Now the point, folks, is this, that you keep on walking and do what God has called you to do, and sooner or later God will send a servant across your path with a word of reassurance. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's the most thrilling thing in all the world. I'm not saying that God will call you on the phone or you'll look out and there'll be red letters in the sky giving you some word. What I'm saying is that you may be sitting in church like you are tonight and the pastor's preaching on something a thousand miles from where you are and he throws away a little verse of Scripture, just kind of quotes it in passing, and all of a sudden that verse becomes to you the living word of God and the light turns on in your heart and you've had a word from God. You may be in the grocery store and you may be shopping in one lane and hear somebody talking in the next lane and they say something, just a snatch of a conversation that wouldn't mean anything else to anybody, but it means something to you. It's the Word of God to you. Just, you know what I'm talking about? Has that ever happened to you? It's one of the greatest things in all the world. You just walk and walk and walk and walk, but you know that sooner or later God's going to send a word of reassurance across your path may not mean anything to anybody else. And it would be fruitless to try to explain it to them, but to you, it's a word. In 1975, in August, I resigned my church where I'd been for nine years. I had wanted to stay there the rest of my life. I had no interest in going anywhere else. But I had been dealing with the growing realization that God wanted Kay and I to enter into a traveling ministry. And so I resigned my church on the last Sunday in August, was my last Sunday. 
Of course, I knew God was going to reward me for doing such a wonderful thing. I mean, it takes some faith for a young man to uh, step out and not have any guaranteed salary. I, I, I had an organization, but it was just me and Kay. There, there, were nobody, there was nobody on the board supporting us or anything. And Of course, I wasn't worried. I knew, God, I knew God was highly impressed with what I was doing. And I knew that I was doing a great and noble thing, and God was going to bless me. I, just knew I was going to have great meetings and have great offerings. It was just going to be wonderful. First meeting I had in Shreveport, Louisiana. Not to say anything about the city, but I tell you what, it, boy, it was one of those churches, you know. I sat on the platform on Sunday morning during the song service and cried because I was not back at my own church. And I said, well, God's just testing me this week. I, I know that this is a test, and I'm going to pass it. Next week will be better. And next week wasn't better. And I'd go home at night, and I couldn't sleep at night because I was saying, why did I leave my church? Well, this is a test. God's just testing me. Next week will be better. And it wasn't. And it wasn't. And it wasn't. And then our son died. And I didn't understand. Lord, uh, I mean, I'm going through enough right now. And when... And you think if you step out and do what God wants you to do, that God's going to sort of, you know, be kind to you. And all of a sudden, things just fell apart. And I went into a real tailspin. I went for six months and never prayed outside the pulpit. I prayed in the pulpit because... You have to. But every time I'd try to pray, you know what would happen? The devil would be there saying, yeah, you prayed for your son too, and look what happened to him. You miss God. And things got so bad, I was in such despair, I knew that I'd made a mistake. I'd miss God. But I couldn't go back to my church because they'd called another man. And I was out of the will of God. I knew it had to be because all of these bad things were happening to me. And I was living in desolation. Well, I got in one day from a meeting. Kay picked me up. And we drove home. And on the way, we stopped by the post office, checked the mailbox, see if we had any mail in there. And I got out of the car, went into the mailbox, and opened the box, and there was one piece of mail there. It was a light blue envelope with those red and blue slashes around. It was an overseas air mail envelope. I picked it up and turned it over, and it was written to me, and I saw the return address on that letter. And when I saw that return address on my letter, I knew God had spoken to me. I didn't open it. I knew what was in it. I took it out to Kay. I said, honey, here's the mail. She took that. She didn't open it either. She saw the return address on it and she knew what it meant. And we sat down there in that car and we cried because God had given us a word of reassurance. And from that moment on, there were more, no, no more doubts 
that we were doing exactly what God asked us to do. You say, preacher, what was that letter? I'm not going to tell you. It would mean a thing to you. It would mean absolutely nothing to you. It would just confuse you more than anything else. But I knew what it was, and Kay knew what it was. It was God sending a servant across my path with a word of reassurance. You can trust God, folks, to give you the word of reassurance when you need it. Let's bow our heads now for a moment. Ron Dunn's podcast is available only for personal edification, not to be duplicated, uploaded to the web, or resold without prior written consent. It is managed and operated by Sherwood Baptist Church. For more Ron Dunn materials, sermon outlines, devotions, and scanned pages from his study Bible, please visit rondunn.com.